good to be reminded that we're praying a prayer that uh, has been prayed for 2,000 years, and it's one that Jesus said. Hey, if you don't know how to pray, uh, this is a simple way. Just use these words. There's nothing magical about those specific words, but this is a simple way uh, to pray to God. Um, Well, it's good to see everyone here this morning. Uh, We're wrapping up a series called People of the Book. Uh, It's been four weeks, and for the last four weeks, we've been discussing the question, really, um, can I trust the Bible? And we've been looking at where the Bible came from and how we got the Bible because it's hard to trust something if you don't really know or understand where it came from. So we've talked about who wrote the Bible, uh, who compiled the Bible, who preserved the Bible. We looked at that last week. And today we're going to talk about who translated the Bible. Because the books that became the Bible were not originally written in English, right? They were written, the Old Testament's written almost entirely in Hebrew. There's a couple of small sections written in Aramaic, but it's mostly written in Hebrew. And then the New Testament is written in Greek. And so for us to even read the Bible, unless you know Hebrew or Greek, ancient Hebrew or Greek, which is actually different than modern Hebrew and Greek, unless you know those languages, you can't read it. For us to read it, we have to read English translations. So today, I just want to talk about How does the Bible get translated? Why translation is so important? Um, Look at some different philosophies or theories or approaches to translation. And then I'll just give you some practical tips at the end about um, how to approach or think about some of the, a bunch of the modern translations that we have. So first, um, a little bit of background history to set the stage. Um, And actually, it's not a little bit. I said that every week. I'm like, a little bit of history and then like 15 minutes of history. So uh, it's probably going to be like 10 or 15 minutes of history. But um, a little bit of history to set the stage. Remember from previous weeks, the Bible was written and compiled roughly from about 3rd or 4th century B.C. to the 1st century A.D. There are certainly sections of the Old Testament written down before that, but it was all sort of put together um, and and in the form that we have it today during that time period. Uh, We talked a lot about that a couple of weeks ago. Um, And then in 410 AD, a biblical scholar turned monk uh, named Jerome translated the Old and New Testaments into Latin. Latin was the official language of the Roman Empire and the church at that time. I described this a whole bunch in detail a couple of weeks ago. Um, And his translation became known as the Latin Vulgate. Vulgate means common. Uh, The common Latin translation that everyone used. It was the official translation of the Bible for the Roman Catholic Church for the next 1,500 years. All the way into the 20th century. But by about 1,000 AD, uh, no one in Europe actually spoke Latin anymore. Latin evolved into a bunch of different local dialects that we now call French and Spanish and Italian, right? The Romance languages. Um, And then other peoples in Europe spoke Germanic dialects or English dialects or Scandinavian uh, dialects. And so the church still used Latin. Everyone used this version of the Bible, um, even though nobody actually spoke it or read it. And so there began to be this movement to translate the Bible into the vernacular languages. Vernacular just means the common or the spoken or the ordinary language of the day. Um, And so, uh, real quick, three translations are important. John Wycliffe, um, you might have heard his name. He produced the first complete translation of the Bible into Old English in 1382. Old English is very different than modern English. Um, And by the way, Wycliffe translated from Jerome's Latin translation. 
So it's actually a translation of a translation of the original documents. Um, And then in 1526, a guy named William Tyndale uh, published an early modern English translation. And then in 1534, Luther uh, translated the Bible into German. And I tell you about that one because um, Tyndale and Luther's uh, translations are really important. Um, First of all, they're important because they're translating not from the Latin, but they went back to the Hebrew and the Greek. And this happens during a significant movement called the Protestant Reformation. And this movement really reshaped all of Europe and all of Christianity. And Bible translation is at the heart of this movement. Uh, Let me tell you a quick story. In 1516, uh, Luther is a young Catholic um, Augustinian monk. He's a university professor as well. So he teaches theology at, a, at the University of Wittenberg in Germany. Um, and the year, uh, in 1516, a Dutch scholar named Erasmus, uh, so we're getting super technical here, had just published a Greek New Testament. So up until that time, if you wanted to study the Greek, as I talked about last week, you had to literally go to libraries and monasteries and find old ancient papyrus Greek manuscripts And so Erasmus goes to all these monasteries. He gathers all the best Greek manuscripts he can find. And then he publishes them in a book. And it's printed and sent all around Europe because the printing press has just been invented. And so for the first time, Luther is a scholar and he gets a copy of this book that is the original, at least based on the best Greek manuscripts that Erasmus could find, the original Greek. And it's the first time that he can really study it. And what Erasmus and both Luther understand or discover is that there are some errors or some mistranslations in the Latin Vulgate. And these have huge implications. So take a look at Matthew 4.17. This is the beginning of Jesus' ministry. This is when Jesus begins to preach and teach his message all across Israel. And the main message is this. This is what it says in Matthew 4.17. Do penance for the kingdom of heaven is near. That's what Jerome's Latin translation, that's the official translation that the church has used for a thousand years. That's what it says. But when Erasmus and Luther both study the Greek, they figure out and begin to learn that the Greek word that's used there in Matthew by Jesus, metanoeo, doesn't really mean do penance. It really has nothing to do with with rites or or rituals or, or sacraments. It really has nothing to do with something good that you need to do to now make up for the bad thing that you did. Metanoia means to change your mind. It means to change your heart. It means to wake up and realize that something in your life needs to change. It really means to repent. Do penance is actually a bad translation. And Luther begins to understand this, that that all of these sacraments, all of these hoops that the priests and the church and the institutions have created for people to jump through these things that we have to do in order to get forgiveness from God. It's this entire edifice or system that's built on a bad translation. And so Luther decides to complain against the church. 
He actually comes up with a list of 95 complaints or 95 theses against the church at that time. And just a few months later, he posts these 95 complaints and look at the first two. Number one, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. Number two, this word cannot be understood as referring to the sacrament of penance, i.e. confession and satisfaction, as administered by the priests. The entire Reformation is launched on this idea, because he'll go on to list a whole bunch of other complaints, and then uh, his complaints are actually mass-produced into pamphlets that are sent all around Europe, and then later he's going to translate the Bible into German, and that's mass-produced, so people in the place where he lived can read the Bible for the first time in their own language. Think about that. If you're a Christian before that time, you grew up going to church, and your entire life You didn't own a Bible because the manuscripts were just in monasteries, so you didn't have it. You didn't read it for yourself. The only time it was read to you was in church when it's read in a language you don't even understand. And so for the very first time, people are reading the Bible for themselves. And this movement changes everything about history. And what most people don't understand is that the twin engines of the Protestant Reformation are Bible translation and the new technology of the printing press that gets this word out to everyone. Now, the Reformation produces a whole bunch of new translations of the Bible, and sometimes they're competing with each other in the years that follow. So in 1604, the King of England, King James I, decides we should have an official translation that's going to be authorized by the church and by the crown, at least for English-speaking people and for the Church of England. And so in 1611, the authorized version is produced, or what we all now call the King James Version of the Bible. And it is the most widely accepted translation of the Bible in English in the modern world for the next 400 years all the way into the 20th century. Now, in the last 50 years, there's been a proliferation of new English translations, uh, really for two reasons. Uh, Number one, the manuscript evidence has changed significantly. The the, the Greek and Hebrew manuscripts that the King James Version relied on, um, we have discovered so many new ones and better ones and older ones since then. Most of the ones I told you about last week have been discovered since the King James. So we actually have better manuscripts, better original documents upon which to base our translations. And then the second reason there's been a whole bunch of new translations in the last 50 years or so is because nobody talks in King James English anymore, right? I mean, the goal of a translation is to render a text in an original language into the language that we now speak and use today. And so there's a ton of new translations that have done that. So the question is, how do you choose between them all? And is there one that's the best translation? So let me describe for you now three approaches or or three theories of translation, and they exist on a spectrum, so these are not airtight sort of boxes with you know, clean borders between. They're, they're on a spectrum, but I'll just describe three sort of different theories. Number one, and I'm giving you the technical words today, uh, number one is called formal equivalence. Formal equivalence. That means that when you're translating from the original language, so in this case, it's going to be Hebrew or Greek, into English, 
You try to keep it as close to the original wording and idioms and grammar and sentence structure as possible. So this is often referred to as a word-for-word translation, where the translators take every single Hebrew and Greek word and try to find the formal equivalent in English, the best equivalent word, and translate it that way. And so sometimes this is referred to as a literal translation. Now, I put that word in quotes because I think that term is actually problematic, and I'll, I'll share with you why in just a second. But that also means... These types of translations are a little bit more wooden. Uh, They're a little more uh, rigid. They're a little more formal. Um, They don't always flow as well in English. And that's because Hebrew and Greek are just very different languages than English. They're written differently. Their grammar is very different. Uh, For example, uh, Hebrew, they use a ton of nouns and verbs. They use hardly any adjectives or adverbs. We use a ton of adjectives and adverbs today in English, and so it's just done very differently. Or in Greek, um, Paul writes these really long, run-on sentences with lots of subordinate clauses, if you remember your English grammar from like middle school or elementary school. Um, And that's not the way we talk or read or even write in English anymore. And so to translate it exactly the way Paul wrote it just doesn't always make for good English. But if you're committed, if you are committed to this word for word translation, this we want to keep it as close as possible to the original way it's written, then it's going to make for English that sometimes might sound a little more formal, a little more wooden than what's common or normal. Uh, The most well-known translations in this category are the New American Standard. That's the NAS. Um, That was very popular in the 80s and 90s. And then the ESV or the English Standard Version, which has gained a lot of popularity in recent years as well. Now, the second translation approach, this is the one in the middle, is called functional equivalence. And uh, as you might see from that term, it seeks to be more functional and less formal in English, more readable in English. To still be as accurate as possible to the original language And so for that reason, this is sometimes called meaning for meaning translation. So translators are asking the question, what's the meaning of these words or these phrases or these idioms in the original language or even these sentences? And how do we translate that into the way that we actually talk and speak and read today? Even if that requires changing word order or grammar from the original. Now, Every translation has to do this, right? Hebrew always puts the verb first and the subject second. So the very first verse in the Hebrew says, in the beginning created God, right? But there's no English translation that says, in the beginning created God, because we always put the subject first and then the verb in English. And so we always translate. So every translation is altering word order to make readable or understandable English because English is just different from Hebrew and Greek. Formal translations, the ones on the left, try to minimize this as much as possible and still make it, you know, readable in English. Whereas these in the middle, functional translations, are more open and more accepting of the idea that we have to change things. And sometimes they would even argue that's more accurate. 
if we're trying to translate it into the way we talk and we think, it's going to be more accurate to translate it into the way we talk and the way we think, right? The most popular translation in uh, this sort of middle group would be the NIV, the New International Version. Uh, This came out in 1978 originally. It was revised in the 80s. It was revised again uh, in 2011. Um, There's also uh, a popular translation called the New Revised Standard Version or NRSV um, that's in this approach as well. So formal equivalence, functional equivalence, and then the last one uh, has a bunch of names. Um, The most common is just the free translation approach or theory. Um, And this approach takes that even a step farther. This says we need to make this as readable and contemporary as possible. This approach is most comfortable making substantial changes uh, to word order, to grammar, um, especially to idioms, uh, to capture the original sense of what the Hebrew or the Greek would have been trying to convey to its original audience. Um, So the message translation, uh, a lot of you might be familiar with, probably is the most well-known translation in this category. It is a translation. uh, It's not a paraphrase. There are some paraphrases in this category. Paraphrases are where you you take an English translation and then you translate it again. Um, So the message is directly from the Hebrew and Greek, um, but it includes words and idioms which are not strictly speaking in the original Hebrew and Greek. So let me give you a quick example. In Romans, Paul talks about um, people being enslaved to sin, that that sin like enslaves us. Well, slavery is a common illustration. It's a common experience. The ancient world that Paul lived in is dominated by slavery. So that's that's a picture that everyone in that world connected to immediately. Well, we live in a world that is not dominated by slavery. Most of us don't experience that. Most of us don't even see that. We know what slavery is. We can picture it, but it just doesn't connect to us on an emotional level as much. And so the message translation in Romans says, it's like we're living under a continuous, low-lying black cloud, right? So that's an idiom we can connect to. That's an expression we use all the time. Like It's like I'm living under this black cloud. But those words... Low-lying, continuous black cloud are not found anywhere in the original Greek. And so some people are uncomfortable with this approach because it feels like it's injecting new ideas or new idioms into something that's not in the original, whereas others would say, no, actually, that's way more relatable to me. That's way more helpful. That actually translates this idea really well into the way that I think and into the life I live and into the culture where I live. So the message translation does this. Um, Another um, is the New Living Translation or NLT. And that's actually about halfway in between uh, the NIV and the message. Now, this is all conceptual or theoretical. So let me give you one example to illustrate uh, these three different approaches. This is Matthew 1.18. It's a familiar, it's, it's a verse from a familiar story. It's the Christmas story. Here's how the ESV translates this verse. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Here's the NIV. Uh, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. 
And then here's the message. The birth of Jesus took place like this. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before they enjoyed their wedding night, Joseph discovered she was pregnant. It was by the Holy Spirit, but he didn't know that. Now, uh, the ESV uh, is accurate in the sense that the word Christ is right there in the Greek, Christos. Um, This verb, uh, betrothed, is is in there. Um, It also literally says they came together. That's the Greek uh, idiom that's used in the text. And then it says at the very end of the verse in Greek, it literally says, she was found in the womb having. So that's the expression in Greek uh, for she was found having a child in her womb, but the word child or baby isn't in there. They just say she was found in the womb having. Um, But that doesn't make sense in English. So even in the ESV, they take the word womb out and they put the word child in. She was with child. Now, the translators of the NIV, the sort of middle of the road approach, recognize a few things. First, uh, the word Christ has sort of become Jesus's last name, but that's not how it was meant in the early languages and in the early culture. Christos in Greek is just the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, which means anointed one. In their language and culture, It meant the long-promised anointed one that God is going to send to redeem and to save Israel. But all of that sort of meaning gets lost when we just hear the word Christ. And so the NIV translators recognize, actually, we should put Messiah in there because that sort of pulls that long history and the meaning behind it into the passage. And so um, that's what they do in the gospel accounts. They usually translate the word Christ as Messiah. Uh, NIV recognizes betrothal is not a word we use in English anymore. Uh, when's the last time somebody said, hey, I got betrothed this weekend, right? I did, we just, nobody talks like that. Um, so the NIV says pledged to be married. Uh, and then the message says the most common words we use, right? Engaged to be married. Uh, they came together is what the literal Greek says. And it's a euphemism. A euphemism is sort of a nice way of saying something that's Uh, more crude. Um, And so uh, instead of saying they slept together, right, or they had sex, that's what it's talking about. It says they came together. And so the ESV and the NIV decide to keep this Greek euphemism. The message decides to use a contemporary euphemism instead before they enjoyed their wedding night. Now, we know what the ESV means and the NIV when we read before they came together, but let's be honest. The message makes it a little more real, a little more vivid, a little bit more raw. It captures the rawness of this story. These these two people are engaged and they're waiting for their wedding night. But before their wedding night happens, one of their, you know, the woman's found and she's pregnant. Like there's just this this intensity behind that way of telling the story that's not there in the other two. And then, of course, With the ESV, it says she was with child, which is kind of like betrothal. We know what it means instantly, but we don't use that language anymore. Um, And so the NIV and the message just say that she was found to be pregnant. Now, there's other differences, but this gives you a picture of how three different approaches can translate the same exact verse. So let me wrap up and give you a few conclusions. Let me sort of pull all this together. Um, Some conclusions and some suggestions. Number one, modern translations are excellent. 
There's no reason to doubt them. Uh, I don't think the King James Version, um, I grew up and we still had that when I was a little kid, but I didn't use it that much. And I, I know some older generations still use it. I, I just don't think it's worth using anymore. Historically, it's beautiful and it's a work of art, right? But it's just not a great modern translation. But all the others that I've mentioned are excellent translations. They're based on the best manuscripts and evidence that we have. They're based on the best scholarship we have. They're done by amazing scholars, even Eugene Peterson. Most people don't know this, but he was an, an amazing Greek and Hebrew scholar, and he relied on a team of scholars to help him do the message. Um, I know one of the scholars that's on the NIV translation committee. It's Dr. Uh, Richard Hess. He's an Old Testament professor at Denver Seminary. And I don't know anyone that is smarter or well-respected in the academic world when it comes to Hebrew and the Old Testament than Dr. Hess. So yes, there's a, several different translation theories. And you can read the same verse in a few different translations and it might actually sound pretty different. But the overall scholarship behind all of them is incredibly reliable and excellent. And it's not an exaggeration to say we have better access to better translations of the Bible in our own language than any other human in history. Now, from time to time, when I'm preaching or someone's preaching up here, you might hear one of us say, well, the NIV translates it this way, but I think a different word that probably could have been used or should have been used is this. And I don't do that because I think I'm smarter than the scholars on the translation committee at all, or because you can't trust their translations. It's just because my goal is to take this text and try to explain it or, or unpack it or bring new meaning to it or help you apply it and expand and challenge your thinking in new ways so that you can read it and it can make an impact in your life. But as I said, you have more resources and better resources today to read the Bible for yourself in our language than anybody else has in history. So there's no reason to doubt any of these translations. Um, number two, there's no literal translation of the Bible. So beware of that idea. As I've tried to say, Hebrew and Greek are very different than English. There are grammatical constructions that they have that just literally do not exist in English. And so we have to make up things or we have to figure out ways of communicating something. And there's just no literal one for one way to do it, right? There's tons of words in Hebrew and Greek that have a broad range of meaning that don't mean the exact same thing every single time it's used. They can mean different things. And so every time that word is used, we have to figure out what's the meaning in this passage. That sounds strange to us, but it's the exact same in English. Think about the English word key for a second. K-E-Y, simple word key, right? What is a key? Well, it's a little instrument that opens a lock. It's a spot on the basketball court. It's an island off the coast of Florida. It's a legend on a map. It's a central idea. It's a solution to a problem. It's the little white and black things that Paul was playing a few minutes ago, right? It's the tone or the pitch that you use in a song. 
It's the little buttons on your laptop that you push to make different alphabetical letters come up. I mean, one simple English word means all of these totally different things. And so if you're translating the word English word key into Spanish, there's not one literal translation. It all depends on the context. It all depends on how I'm using the word and the meaning that I'm giving it. So the danger here is to say, well, I just want the most literal translation of the Bible. Just give me the most literal. And to kind of look at the chart I put up there earlier and think, well, all the ones, you know, over here are the most literal. So give me that one as if that's better or more literal than the others. I used to think that I grew up with the new American standard and uh, that's what I read. And versions like that have their place. And I still use them um, from time to time in helpful ways. I've also read plenty of translations from the whole other end of the spectrum where I thought, I think that captures what the original author was saying way better than these. I think these are way more literal in this sense than those. So just be aware, there's no right or wrong, there's no literal translation. That can be a really dangerous word to use. All right, number three, and here's where I'll get super practical. Um, Choose one main translation that you try to use every day, right? I think it's important to just land on one translation that becomes your go-to translation. You'll remember it better rather than skipping around from a whole bunch of different ones. Uh, You'll memorize passages easier right? Because you'll be used to it. It'll become more familiar. It'll provide helpful consistency. Uh, our recommendation uh, in New Denver is the NIV. If you've been here for very long, you know that that's what we use on Sundays. Personally, I think it has the best balance of an approach, this middle of the road approach. It has an outstanding, diverse team of scholars from a bunch of different Christian traditions that are all behind it. Um, They've updated it regularly. It was updated about 10 years ago and it'll continue to go through updates and revisions. Why? Because scholarship improves and language changes. So we recommend the NIV. I know um, a bunch of people that use the ESV. I know people that use the NRSV and those are both great translations. Uh, There is one key difference between the ESV and the NIV um, that I'm going to talk about in the podcast this week. It's a big, long rabbit trail, so w- we can unpack that and you can hear more about that. Um, but we recommend the NIV here as a great go-to translation. Number four, uh, consider several translations for study and personal or devotional engagement. It's good to have one main translation that's your go-to, but I think consulting others can be helpful. If you're studying a passage, maybe you're in a Bible study with others and you're studying one passage, it actually is helpful to read three very different translations. And then you kind of see, oh, that's interesting. They translate the idea different. I wonder why is that? And then you're beginning to engage the text in new ways. Or if you're going through a reading plan where you want to try to read the Bible in a year or something like that, sometimes it's good to read a translation that you've never read before because it's fresh and it's new and it's vivid. Um, Two that I recommend are the message. I do still love the message and the new living translation, the NLT. Um, It's about halfway uh, between the NIV and the message. As I said, it's more readable than the NIV. It's more understandable. I think it's more accessible. I've been using it a ton over the last couple of years. It's actually become the one that I read every single day. And it's the one that I gave my kids in middle school when they first started really digging into a real Bible and not just the children's version. So I think the NLT is a great one to consider as well. All right, number five, this is the last one. Um, 
Don't forget about formatting. Uh, because, um, and this is not about translation per se, but it's just as important. If you're going to read the Bible, how do you read it? Do you read it on your phone now? I mean, a lot of us do that. Or if you're going to read a paper Bible, or if you're going to go out and buy one right after this message because you're so excited about everything you learned, right? Um, what version do you buy? I don't mean what translation, but there's a million Bibles out there. Like, which one do you buy? So formatting, how the Bible is actually put together and formatted on the page is really important. So um, we don't have time to get into that. So I'm going to talk about that in the podcast this week as well. But don't overlook how important that is when you're reading the Bible. All right, let's wrap up. We started this series with one simple question. Can we trust the Bible And for four weeks, we've addressed all sorts of other questions about where it came from and how we got it. Next week, we're going to kick off a new series and uh, we're going to really dig deep into the Bible. Um, We're going to take nine weeks to read the continuous story of this guy named David. We're going to be in the Old Testament, first and second Samuel and a little bit in the book of Psalms. And uh, if you want to know, how can I trust the Bible? I don't think there's any better way than digging into a story like this. So I hope you'll make it a priority to be here in person on Sundays. We're going to read a story that's maybe the most human story. That's the most raw story. It's a story of a guy that at first glance is like, I have nothing in common with this king from ancient Israel. And as you read his story, you're going to say, actually, I have everything in common with his life, with his family, with the people around him, with all of the brokenness and all the difficult things that he faces. It's one of the most, I think, trustworthy stories we can read. And so I hope you'll continue on this journey of engaging the Bible as we jump into that next Sunday. Let me pray for us. Lord, um, I pray that as we do continue to engage this ancient text, as we've prayed all along in this series, that you would meet us in this process um, and that you would help us to not get so focused on the words of this book that we miss what it's pointing to. Ultimately, God, we want to know you better. We want to know ourselves better. And we know that In order for us to know you and ourselves in this world we live in, that you sent your son to show us the way. And so help us to follow him, to know him, to trust in him, to lean into him in our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen.